Hello, and welcome to the Re-Re-Read podcast, where we consider what contemporary writers can learn from classic literature. Today's topic once again is Dracula, and specifically Dracula's psychology. I wrote the first version of this talk after reading a post by Carrie K. Heimbenus, which was about monster psychology, and the post is still up and you should read it, it's very good. The main point being that a monster should have a psychology. Monsters are characters, and just like other characters, they grow more interesting as they reveal layers of complexity. So what can we learn about monster psychology from Dracula? Is Dracula complex? Does he have motivations other than sucking blood to survive? Does he have a history? Is he at war with himself? In the first several chapters, Dracula disguises himself as a coachman to pick up Jonathan at the crossroads, cooks Jonathan several meals and cleans up after him, lunges at Jonathan's throat when he sees that Jonathan has cut himself shaving, and then smashes the shaving mirror, but not before Jonathan observes that Dracula casts no reflection, questions Jonathan extensively on the duties of solicitors in England, locks Jonathan in the castle, climbs down an outer wall, head first, wearing Jonathan's clothes, kills a baby and feeds it to his wives and sets a pack of wolves on the baby's mother, grins malignantly at Jonathan from his coffin when Jonathan attempts to bash him in the face with a shovel. So Dracula's monstrosity is pretty well established early on. He is powerful, smart, and slippery. He is also a nobleman whose line, possibly through some fault of his own, has seen better days. Though it's not quite presented this way, there's something amusing and a little pathetic about Jonathan's discovery that Dracula does all his own housework, though he falls down on dusting, like so many of us, because he has no more servants. Even his wives, or possibly daughters, don't help him, which is rather gratifying. When Jonathan first arrives, Dracula still attempts little touches of nobility, such as serving his guest dinner on gold plates and leaving him nice notes with his breakfast. I slept till late in the day and awoke of my own accord. This is from Jonathan's journal. When I had dressed myself, I went into the room where we had supped and found a cold breakfast laid out with coffee kept hot by the pot being placed on the hearth. There was a card on the table. I have to be absent for a while. Do not wait for me. D. I just love that little D. Anyway, is this ruined but insistent nobility a veneer, a ruse for drawing in innocent victims? Is it a political comment by Stoker? Answer to both questions, yes. But does it also constitute a psychology, a way for readers to understand and maybe slightly identify with D? Having discovered that he is a prisoner in the castle, Jonathan attempts to get Dracula talking to see what he can find out about his situation. Dracula does like to talk, especially about the past, and he does have some grudges. Again from Jonathan's journal. Midnight, I have had a long talk with the Count. I asked him a few questions on Transylvania history, and he warmed up to the subject wonderfully. In his speaking of things and people, and especially of battles, he spoke as if he had been present at them all. This he afterwards explained, by saying that to a boyar the pride of his house and name is his own pride, that their glory is his glory, that their fate is his fate. Whenever he spoke of his house, he always said we, and spoke almost in the plural, like a king speaking. I wish I could put down all he said exactly as he said it, for to me it was most fascinating. It seemed to have in it a whole history of the country. He grew excited as he spoke, and walked about the room, pulling his great white mustache and grasping anything on which he laid his hands, as though he would crush it by main strength. One thing he said, which I shall put down as nearly as I can, for it tells in its way the story of his race. 
We Shekelis have a right to be proud, for in our veins flows the blood of many brave races who fought as the lion fights for lordship. And by the way, I'm not going to do the accent, but then again, the accent may not be the one you think it should be. Maybe think of this in a sort of adenoidal Queens, New York accent. Here, in the whirlpool of European races, the Ugric tribe bore down from Iceland, the fighting spirit which Thor and Woden gave them, which their berserkers displayed to such fell intent on the seaboards of Europe, I and of Asia and Africa too, till the people thought that the werewolves themselves had come. Here, too, when they came, they found the Huns, whose warlike fury had swept the earth like a living flame, till the dying peoples held that in their veins ran the blood of those old witches, who, expelled from Scythia, had mated with the devils in the desert. Fools, fools, what devil or what witch was ever so great as Attila, whose blood is in these veins? He held up his arms. Is it a wonder that we were a conquering race, that we were proud, that when the Magyar, the Lombard, the Avar, the Bulgar, or the Turk poured his thousands on our frontiers, we drove them back? Is it strange that when Arpad and his legions swept through the Hungarian fatherland, he found us here when he reached the blah, 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 blah. Let's skip a bit. Uh, he's ranting. So another couple paragraphs go by. Ah, young sir, the Shekelis and the Dracula as their heart's blood, their brains, and their swords can boast a record that mushroom growths like the Habsburgs and the Romanovs can never reach. The warlike days are over. Blood is too precious a thing in these days of dishonorable peace, and the glories of the great races are as a tale that is told. So Dracula's story is the story, at least from one point of view, of a people. Not of a good people or a nice people. Indeed, they seem to be a seriously fascist people. But their glories are all in the past, and Dracula clearly has not moved on. When Jonathan discovers Dracula in his coffin, he sees in the Count's eyes such a look of hate, though unconscious of me or my presence, that I fled from the place. In other words, the Count is not simply a killing machine, although he is that. He is motivated by revenge for a deep historical humiliation. Does this history make Dracula sympathetic? Definitely not. Understandable? More intriguing? I think so. Now, I originally wrote on this subject long before we had experienced the presidency of the former guy. So let's now pause to consider how well this passage describes and predicts the lead monster of our current American moment. The sense of a supposedly once-proud people brought low, and the appetite for violence and destruction this engenders, describes our present moment pretty well. Add to that the ability to spread death and terror through a kind of infection, and it's really kind of uncanny. In Dracula, good does eventually prevail over evil, but not without a great deal of effort. Real evil is tenacious as hell because it believes itself absolutely in the right. 